It was not a love for money because money was not there. It's because they loved the game. They loved the game and they wanted to show people that just give us an opportunity to play like you've given everybody else and we'll show you how to play the game of baseball. Henry Aaron, Hank, Hammer, the last hero, my hero. But before all of that, he was pork chops. This is the story of the Negro League's legacy of the great Henry Aaron. The date was January 22nd of this year, and I had just pulled up in front of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum about to report in to my office to begin my normal Friday routine when I get a call from a friend who wanted to inform me that Henry Aaron had passed away. And I was absolutely stunned by the news. And so after exchanging a little bit of dialogue and hanging up the phone with him, I sat there in my car in complete isolation. And honestly, tears started to flow. Because for me, Henry Aaron, and I've said this on this show on any number of occasions, he is my all-time favorite baseball player. He was my childhood idol As a kid growing up in small town, Georgia, Crawfordville, Georgia, about 80 miles east of Atlanta, 50 miles west of Augusta, all of 500 people. And every day on the sandlot, I wanted to be Henry Aaron. I wanted to run like Henry Aaron. I wanted to hold a bat like Henry Aaron. And so when we were on the playground, I was always Henry Aaron. And I'm sure there were other kids who wanted to be Henry Aaron, but nope, I was the only one that could be Henry Aaron. And so his passing was more than just professional to me. This was personal. And this episode that we are dedicating to the late, great Henry Aaron is as much personal for me as it is professional as part of this podcast known as Black Diamonds, because I lost my hero. And I was very fortunate, however, to spend considerable amount of time with Henry Aaron through the years. And and I've told this story on many occasions. Every time I was around the late, great Henry Aaron, I was reduced to the almost 12-year-old kid who in 1974, when he broke Babe Ruth's record, hitting home run number 715 in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, I'm 80 miles away in our little house, my parents' home. And as my childhood idol was circling the bases there in Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, I'm circling the bases in my mother's living room. And her old couch was first base. She had an old TV that was second base, another old couch that was third base, and her old recliner was home plate. And as my childhood hero was touching them all, I was jumping for joy, touching them all right alongside him. The greatest sports accomplishment, certainly in my lifetime, was Henry Aaron's breaking of Babe Ruth's record. And I shared the story with him, and he smiled, and he gave me a hug. And that today is one of the greatest moments for me, having had an opportunity to walk my childhood idol through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I'll never forget 1999. Major League Baseball is celebrating the 25th anniversary of Henry Aaron's breaking of Ruth's record. And they had put together a national baseball tour for Mr. Aaron. And it's sad that it took him literally 25 years before he got an opportunity to exhale and enjoy what many believe to be the greatest sports accomplishment ever, and that was the breaking of Ruth's record. It was so painful for him because of all the racial strife that he had to endure as he was making this pursuit on the legendary Babe Ruth's record. And so 25 years later, 
we're gathering here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. The Kansas City Royals had jumped on board to bring he and his wife, Billy, to Kansas City. And I draw the assignment of touring my childhood idol because my friend Buck O'Neill was out of town. What a great twist of fate that was for me because now I'm the lead horse in taking Mr. Aaron on this tour of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And folks, I was a nervous wreck. I, I, I tell people all the time, this was the first and only time that I've ever been starstruck. Now, mind you, we've had two American presidents tour this museum and President Bill Clinton and President George W. Bush, uh, several first ladies of these United States, including the incredible Michelle Obama, uh, a host of other dignitaries and political leaders and athletes and entertainers. And as I oftentimes say, with no disrespect to any of them, they are not Henry Aaron in the eyes, mind, and heart of this kid from Crawfordville, Georgia. So I am a nervous wreck. I'm at home. I'm laying out everything. You know, the wardrobe has to be perfect for this day. And uh, we get here to the museum. They mic me up. And we've got a throng of media that's following us as I lead this tour of Mr. Aaron through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And it was fascinating because I was sharing stories about the Negro Leagues that he did not know even though he was a part of the Negro Leagues, albeit very briefly. And so we get to my favorite picture in the entire museum. And it's a relatively nondescript photograph of a then 18-year-old Henry Aaron standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama, about to go leave to join the Indianapolis Clowns, 1952. He couldn't have weighed more than 150 pounds. He looked so frail and so fearful as he was standing there about to embark on this journey to go pursue the beginning of his professional baseball career. And we get to that photograph and we stop. And of course, before he became Hammerin' Hank, his nickname in the Negro Leagues was Pork Chops. And apparently, Mr. Aaron had a penchant for only eating pork chops and fries when he traveled with the clowns. And, and so we stopped there, and some of the delegation that was with me, we started to tease him. We said, Mr. Aaron, why do they call you pork chops? He says, I guess that was the only thing I knew how to order off the menu. So he found something, and he stuck with it, and he ate pork chops and fries with every meal, and they nicknamed him pork chops. But he was a skinny, cross-handed hitting shortstop. And for those of you who may be hearing that term for the first time, Mr. Aaron was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. That is unorthodox. The fear is that you would break your wrist hitting in that manner. Well, Henry Aaron, folks, was knocking the cover off the baseball in an highly unorthodox fashion. When he gets to the clowns, they reluctantly put the right hand on top because they didn't want to tinker with this kid's swing. So they put the right hand on top and the rest, as they say, is history. The Indianapolis Clowns were no joke. Much like the Harlem Globetrotters in basketball, the Clowns were known as one of the most competitive, most dominant teams to ever fill the scoreboard, but also one of the most entertaining, most exhilarating teams to ever fill a stadium. They took home four Negro American League pennants from 1950 to 1954, continued operations as the last Negro Leagues team still playing in 1966, and were a popular barnstorming act all the way through 1989. Many of the biggest names in the history of black baseball proudly called themselves clowns, namely Henry Aaron, Negro American League Triple Crown winner Sam Hairston, American League All-Star John Wyatt, New York Met, Choo Choo Coleman, Globetrotter, Goose Tatum, and a trio of female pioneers, pitcher Mamie Peanut Johnson, and infielders Connie Morgan and Tony Stone. Indianapolis Clowns shortstop Benny Felder. 
Boy, if you wanted to see the world, you joined the Indianapolis Clowns because they would take you all over the world. You had, went everywhere with the clown. They played everywhere. They had some good ball players. Goose Tatum was the first baseman on that ball club, and uh, Harrison was the catcher on that ball club. They, they had some good. Ray Neal played second base. Hall of Famer and former Kansas City Monarch Ernie Banks recorded with journalist Stephen Banker. Well, Hank, to me, is one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. Uh, of course, we all know about baseball-wise. He's a great hitter, great all-around baseball player, has made a strong contribution to the success and all the rich heritage of baseball. He played for the Indianapolis Clowns, didn't he? Yes, he did. Uh, he played there for about a year. And uh, What kind of team was that in those days, which was uh, after Jackie Robinson, after integration? Well, it was a fine ball club with a lot of great players on it. It was a team, same as the Kansas City Monarchs, in the same leg, and uh, they uh, had a show, more or less, in the seventh inning. They'd have a... The clowns were clowns, went clowning. Yeah, they had a shadow ball, taking infield, and they were a little uh, dancing act and everything. Henry Aaron was a cross-handed batter. A cross-handed hitter? How did it work out? Worked out uh, fine for him. <laughs> the legendary Henry Aaron, recorded on July 8, 2012, at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I played with the Indianapolis Clowns. If we're talking about the Negro League, you know, the most amazing thing about that league, I only played in it for about two and a half months. But the most amazing thing is that the question that I get all over the world, everywhere I go, what do you think that playing in the Negro League, was that A ball, double A, triple A? I said, you know, I said, if you play in the Negro League and the way we play, those players, all of them, all of them, in spite of the handicap and what they went through, I think if their field had been playing with a little level, I think most of them would have played in the big leagues. Henry Aaron's illustrious professional career began in the Negro Leagues, 1952, with the Indianapolis Clowns. And the reason I love this photograph so much, there is a small duffel bag right at his foot. And he told me, he says, Bob, I may have had two changes of clothes in that bag a dollar fifty cents in my pocket and a ham sandwich that my mama had made me going to go chase that dream. Well, as we know, it worked out pretty doggone well for the hammer. So we complete the tour. We go across the street from the museum over to the gym theater. And the gym theater is filled to the rafters for a town hall conversation that was hosted by my good friends who at that time were both writing for the Kansas City Star. They were national sports columnists, Jason Whitlock and Joe Posnansky. Places filled to the rafters. The conversation was electric as he started to kind of reflect on that very tumultuous time as he was making this ascent on Ruth's record. And as some of you may know, his family was in hiding at that time. The last two years of my career was really probably the toughest years of my 21 years, or 23 years, rather. I had to stay at another hotel to come out of the ballpark. I had security people to walk me to another hotel. I was not allowed to eat in the dining rooms for the last two years. It was probably one of the toughest two years I've ever had in my life. My kids, I had to put my kids... I had a daughter that was at Fisk University, and she had gotten several threatening phone calls about kidnap. And I had gotten, uh, I had to have the two boys who was at a, a private school. They had to be escorted home every day. And and somehow, you know, I, it, it was not very good those two years. It was kind of sad for me because it should have been the most joyful time for me. Uh, to enjoy myself, but yet it was a time when people thought that I was doing something that was was not supposed to be done, you know, and I was merely playing baseball and just doing the very best that I could possibly do. He was getting bags upon bags of death threats 
because here was this black man in the deep south about to break this famed white major league heroes record. And that was not sitting in very well with a lot of people. Each one of the letters that I received had to be scrutinized, had to go through the police department and the FBI. And I finally decided, I said, listen, I said, I'm just tired of this. And he said, well, he said, let me, let me just tell you, this is the guy from the FBI was telling me, he said, we have to do this because 99% of this is nothing but just somebody just crazy. But you may have one fool in this bunch. Honestly, he doesn't know if he's going to make it around the bases when he hits 715 because of all the death threats that he had received. And so he talked about this. The night uh, that I broke the record. Aaron waiting, the outfield deep and straight away. Fast ball is a high drive in the deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. Many of you probably saw when those two kids flew around the bases with me. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. There was a guy that was right by home plate. His name was Calvin Watlow, who worked with the Atlanta Police Department, who had a pair of binoculars around his neck, and inside of the binoculars was a 38 snub-nosed gun, you know. And when those kids started running around the bases, he said he started to open up his binoculars, and I said, Calvin, I said, I'm glad you didn't. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. As Aaron circled the bases, the Dodgers on the infield shook his hand, and that was a memorable moment. Aaron is being mobbed by photographers. He is holding his right hand high in the air, and for the first time in a long time, that poker face of Aaron shows the tremendous strain and relief of what it must have been like to live with for the past several months. It is over. At ten minutes after nine in Atlanta, Georgia, Henry Aaron has eclipsed the mark set by Babe Ruth. It took him 25 years before he finally got an opportunity to exhale and be celebrated for this tremendous accomplishment. And then At the conclusion of that event, we go up to the mezzanine level of the gym theater and me and my idol, Henry Aaron, we sit down over a platter of Gates barbecue ribs. Y'all, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I'm eating ribs with my childhood idol and to the day that he died, every time he saw me, He said, you didn't bring any ribs with you. And and so it was just an amazing occasion. And every time I was around him, I was reduced to that 12-year-old kid that circled the bases in his parents' living room celebrating my idol's breaking of Ruth's record. And he recounted, he said, I didn't know if I was leaving home to go play with kids my own age are grown men. And as we know, he was leaving home to go play with grown men. I can remember that uh, we played two games in Washington, D.C., and then we went and got on the bus and played a night game in Baltimore, Maryland. So we would play three games. And, you know, I, I said this, I was only about 19 years old at that time. It didn't bother me, but I saw the grind and the hurt on a lot of the older players, you know, really, where they were, it was hating them to play that many games, you know, really. But it was not a love for money because money was not there. It's because they loved the game. And I'll never forget Buck O'Neill. 
says the first time that he saw Henry Aaron, it was in Mobile, Alabama, and the Kansas City Monarchs are playing the Indianapolis Clowns in a spring training game there in Mobile. And says he goes out to exchange lineup cards with the Clowns manager, Buster Haywood, great manager. And he looks at the lineup card and he sees this kid named Aaron batting in the three-hole. He said, Buster, who's this kid Aaron? He said, oh, Buck, you got to see him. Buck said, okay, well, we'll see what he got. Well, by the end of the day, that kid Aaron had gone four for four with two home runs. Well, Buck and Buster are having dinner that night. And Buck says, well, Buster, I ain't going to have to worry about that kid Aaron by the time you get to Kansas City. He said, Buck, what you talking about? He says, someone's going to sign him. And sure enough, he was signed away, played three months in the Negro Leagues by then the Boston Braves, who would become the Milwaukee Braves, who, of course, would become the Atlanta Braves. And Henry Aaron was certainly reminded of the times that he was living in as he leaves Mobile to go join the Indianapolis Clowns, who coincidentally never played in Indianapolis while Aaron was on the team. Yeah, they were playing out of Buffalo at that time. So Mr. Aaron recalls one particular incident that occurred while they were playing in D.C. He says, we had breakfast while we were waiting for a rain delay to stop. And I can still envision sitting with the clowns in a restaurant behind Griffith Stadium and hearing them break all the plates in the kitchen after we'd finished eating. What a horrible sound. Even as a kid, the irony of it hit me. Here we were in the capital, in the land of freedom and equality, and they had to destroy the plates that had touched the forks that had been in the mouths of black men. If dogs had eaten off those plates, they would have simply washed them and used them again. That was Henry Aaron's reality. It was the reality of black men in general during that era, and particularly those who played in the Negro Leagues. But as I've oftentimes said, even on this show, as we talked about some of that young star talent that left the Negro Leagues to move into Major League Baseball, that older Negro League player sheltered them. They took care of them. They shielded them from as much of this hate and vitriol as they possibly could. And so as Henry Aaron and Ernie Banks and Willie Mays would move into the major leagues, they never forgot that. They took with them in spirit those players who had taken care of them while they were playing there in the Negro Leagues and traveling the highways and byways of our country. And for me, why that picture is so special, because when my visitors walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and they see that picture of a young Henry Aaron, and there are still a lot of baseball fans who had no idea that Henry Aaron's illustrious career began in the Negro Leagues. It serves as a point of validation because we know what Henry Aaron did at the major league level. Folks, Henry Aaron had been retired for the game for 45 years, and he still holds the record for runs batted in, 2,297. Total bases, 6,856 of them. Career extra base hits, 1,477 of them in a sterling 21-year Hall of Fame career. And if you took all 755 home runs away, he'd still have over 3,000 hits, a 25-time All-Star. Henry Aaron is easily one of the greatest players this game has ever seen. And in a game of numbers, no one's numbers are better than Henry Aaron. And so if I had told you that there was a kid that played in the Negro Leagues that would set this kind of standard, well, everybody would have said, well, we didn't see that, so I don't believe it. But we saw Henry Aaron, 
And that's why I say that he serves as a bit of a validating point when you go through the Negro Leagues Museum. Because people are very kind to me as I'm telling the stories of Cool Papa Bill and Josh Gibson and Bullet Rogan and Willard Brown and Hilton Smith, Boo June Wilson, and all of these other legendary stars. And they kind of look at me like, well, Bob, I know, you know, they were good, but I don't know if they were as good as you say they were. And then you get to that picture of a young Henry Aaron, and all of a sudden, now it starts to register. Perhaps there were some other guys who called the Negro Leagues home that could really play. And I don't think it's far-fetched to think that maybe there might have been some players who played before Henry Aaron who were just as good or perhaps even better than the legendary Henry Aaron. Now, that's scary to think, because when we talk about Henry Aaron and Willie Mays, and we'll talk about Willie Mays on an upcoming episode of Black Diamonds, we're talking about two of the greatest Major League Baseball players of all time who just happened to come out of the Negro Leagues. Coincidentally, $50 kept us from having an outfield that would have featured Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, and Monty Irvin three Negro League stars, three Hall of Fame players in this game. I was scouted when I was playing with the, with the Indianapolis Clowns. I was scouted by five different major league teams. When I signed a contract, I signed to play with then the Boston Braves, which was, they didn't have much of anything at the time. And before then, I was supposed to sign with the Giants. And the only reason that I didn't sign with the Giants is because the Braves offered me $50 more to play with them than the Giants was offering me. And that's why I ended up with, uh, with the Atlanta, well, it was the Boston Braves then, but then later on moved to Milwaukee. We would have had Willie Mays and Henry Aaron in the same outfield. We could only imagine what that would have looked like. But you know what? In retrospect, it was probably better the way that it turned out because each of them got to showcase their enormous skills in their own markets and people would fall in love with both of these incredible players. Henry Aaron was the last Negro Leaguer to be on a major league roster when he retired in 1976. And so this show is dedicated to old pork chops, my childhood idol and my all-time favorite baseball player. And to be honest, there is still a piece of my heart that is missing with the untimely passing of Henry Aaron. But as I've oftentimes said, most of us have sports heroes. And so oftentimes, we don't ever get to meet our heroes. And when we do on those rare occasions meet them, they don't always live up to our lofty expectations. Henry Aaron far and away exceeded anything that this kid from Crawfordville, Georgia, could have ever imagined. And so I am a, a better person having met Henry Aaron because not only was he one of the greatest baseball players to ever play this game, he was one of the greatest human beings to ever walk the face of this earth. He was a philanthropist. He was a humanitarian. He was a civil rights icon. And Henry Aaron absolutely left this world better than the way he found it. Coming up next, one of America's great writers and the author of The Last Hero, The Life of Henry Aaron, Howard Bryant. Here, every game? From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the SiriusXM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray, there's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. 
Experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC and follow Bob at NLBMPrez. Well, I'm pleased to welcome to Black Diamond someone who is absolutely no stranger to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and I think one of the great writers of the 21st century, Mr. Howard Bryant. Howard, man, welcome to Black Diamond. Bob, always a pleasure. Every time it's the same, right? Uh, just a pleasure to, to be here and to talk about talk about ball and talk about Black baseball. Um, like I said, I could do it all day. Well, you know, you have been a tireless advocate for Negro Leagues baseball, Negro Leagues history, some of the great figures in Black baseball, including the man who is the primary topic of discussion today, the late, great Henry Aaron. If you could capsulize, what did Henry Aaron mean to you? Well, it's not an understatement that uh, he changed my life. He changed my career. He helped me. He was he was everything that you would hope a legend would be. What a, when people always tell you, you don't want to meet your heroes. That's a lie when it comes to Henry Aaron. You wanted to meet Henry Aaron. You wanted to meet him. You wanted to be around him. You wanted to protect him. You wanted everything for him that... Uh, that real love is all about. You know what I mean? You just look at this person and you say, this is a, this is a giant figure who not just deserves your respect, but deserved all of our respect. And with Henry, the book was called The Last Hero because when you go back to 2005, that was the last record. That was the end of, of, of really the, our generation of baseball, where those numbers mattered so much, where it was that foursome, you couldn't change it. Ru- you know, Aaron, Ruth, Mays, Frank Robinson, everybody knew those numbers. And it was obvious that Barry was going to break the record. It was obvious that these new players were going to come in. It was obvious that 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 was that once that record fell, that times were going to change completely. And so that's why I had called him the last hero. And I started to think about what I wanted that book to be. And I remember wanting to talk to him and having real, having problems with that book. I had three, I had three major problems with that book. One of course was getting Henry to talk to me because I didn't know him. I mean, I admired him, but I didn't know him. And Henry didn't feel like talking back then because Henry always felt like it was a lose-lose situation for him. He kept thinking that everybody was trying to set him up. He kept thinking that, oh, well, you're just trying to get me to say something bad about Barry Bonds. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want to write about you. You're Henry Aaron. I want to tell the story of your life. And it was so funny during that time period, during the the mid-2000s, he really didn't think he had a lot of value. He really thought that people believed that that they weren't interested in him, that he wasn't an anti-hero. You know, he wasn't one of those people. He wasn't a bad boy. He never got in trouble and that stuff. And so he was like, you know he was a little disillusioned as well. And I remember being on the phone with him. In fact, it was Jackie Robinson's birthday. It was January 31st, 2007, I believe it was, the first time he and I spoke. And I remember us going back and forth. And I remember him saying, nobody cares about me. I'm like, do you really believe that, right? Mr. Aaron, you're Henry Aaron. And it was almost as if he had sort of felt like, um, you know, I said, do you, can I ask you a question? I said, do you want to be known? And he said, of course I want to be known. He says, but every time I talk, people get it wrong. They get me wrong. And then I have to call them and tell them they get it wrong. And then they apologize. And then they promise to correct it. And then I have to correct the correction. And then they get the correction wrong. And so I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to stay back and say nothing because you can't get me right. And I was like, well, I am asking you for the opportunity to try to get this right. So it required a lot of listening. It required a lot of research. It required a lot of stepping outside of yourself to understand people and to understand him because you knew damn well that after you got off the phone with him that day, you better get it right. You have to understand him. He can, you cannot end this book with him looking at this going, another one got it wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you clearly got it right because I know the great affinity that he developed for you, the relationship that you guys had after the book. And that only happens if you get it right. If you get it right. Well, yeah, I remember right. we, we were at the Hall of Fame and I hadn't spoken to him. I got invited to the Hall of Fame when they were honoring him in 2010 after the book came out. And I hadn't spoken to anybody. So I had no idea what the family reaction or what his reaction was. And so we're sitting there at the Oda Saga at this cocktail, uh, little cocktail party. And and I'm just waiting because I have not seen anybody. There's Ambassador Young. Hey, Ambassador, how you doing? We good. We good. And here comes Billy Aaron. And she's making a beeline toward me. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sweating like I'm under a, like a heat lamp. Like I'm, I'm sweating like it's like an in in interrogation. Where were you on the night of the 12th, right? I was like, here she comes. And she comes walking up to me. And you know, Billy, she's got that soft, very buttery voice. But that don't mean what's coming out of her mouth is buttery. Exactly. Right? So she's like, nice. and then she said, you know, I want to tell you, you wrote a really great project, a good book, but you made one major mistake. And I'm like, oh. And she said, my part wasn't big enough. <laughs> and that made that brought everything down and and and, and made it easier. Um, but absolutely, I mean, Henry wasn't easy, and I and we did an event for him for his 80th birthday at the Smithsonian. It was just Henry and and me on stage, and we're talking, and he's telling me all these stories and all these stories, and I'm looking at him, and I'm giving him the side eye in front of 700 people in the audience, and I finally look at him, I said. How come none of this is in my book? He said, well, I can't tell you. I, I couldn't tell you everything. I said, yes, you're actually supposed to tell me everything. This is the time to tell me everything. Um, but 100%. And it, it really did change everything. And the most, the, the sadness that I had when he passed really stemmed from the fact that he was different. And you talk yeah. to him and he would, every yeah. time you get off the phone, he would say, hey, give me a call. And I'm like, you're Hank Aaron. I can't just call whenever I want. He's like, call whenever you want. And the fact of the matter is, is that when he said it, he meant it. And I didn't take as much advantage of it out of respect for the legend. And I wish I had called him more. You know, and, and uh, that reverence that you're speaking of, that's the exact reverence that I had for Mr. Aaron. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, as I had said in, in this show, he is the only person that I've ever been starstruck by. Mm -hmm. I was always reduced to that 12-year-old kid, yep. you know, that I tell the story of circling the bases in my parents' living room when he hit home run 715. Mm -hmm. I'm circling the bases with him. And, and here I am in 1999 walking him through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Mm. And, and for me because you, you, you touched on it in the opening uh, of this segment, it's not oftentimes that, we, number one, we get to meet our heroes. Yep. Number two, more times than not, they don't live up to the lofty expectations That's that right. we have of them. Mm -hmm. But as you said, Henry Aaron far he lived up exceeded. To it. He lived up to it completely. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And not only did he live up to it, he lived up to it as a human being. I mean, that was the thing with him, is that you realized that you were you were in the presence of not just greatness, but poetry and human humanity and decency. And like, I was with him one day and he was, he was talking about wanting to be free and what freedom meant to him. And he wasn't talking about it from a, a civil rights st standpoint. He was talking about it just from the standpoint of, of being accepted on your own terms and how that never gets, that doesn't happen. Most of us, he's not just, not just me, but most people, we just don't get that. And he was telling me about a time that he and Billy, I think I ended the book with this, that he and Billy went to the Panama Canal. They were taking a cruise going through the Panama Canal and he was looking out over the deck and he saw these birds swooping down and swooping back up and flying into the, and he was like, I just wanted to be them. And that there was not a care in the world and there was not a, nobody was talking to you because you played baseball or because you meant something to them, you were just there. You were just free. And, and everything that you did in that moment was authentic and organic. And I'm listening to this and I'm going, this is poetic. And I'm also thinking he's saying this because of the hundreds of thousands of conversations he's had, he had to question 
why are you talking to me? You're talking to me because I did something, not because of who I am. And I just thought that was very poignant. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And when he passed away, because this, from my purview, was totally unexpected. Completely. So I, I, there was no preparation. There's no preparation for it. 100%. No, no. And, and I sat in my car because someone called me and told mm-hmm. me that it passed away. I, I was almost paralyzed in my Same. vehicle. I could not get out. And it was extraordinarily emotional for me. So I had to now collect myself before I came into this office. Yeah, I didn't absolutely. want the staff wondering, you know, why... You know, why, you know, why is Bob in tears? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I had to sit there and kind of collect myself. But it kind of goes back to what you were referencing when the times that I spent with him, it wasn't just Henry Aaron, the guy who broke Ruth's record. It was Henry Aaron, this man who was a humanitarian, a mm-hmm. philanthropist, a civil rights icon who just happened to break Babe Ruth's oh, That's right. That's yeah. right. But I mm-hmm. asked Dusty Baker this, this question, and I'm wondering how much Henry disclosed with you. I asked Dusty, I said, Dusty, when you guys were in the midst of Mr. Aaron approaching Ruth's record, were you afraid? And he said, unequivocally, yes. yes afraid, for afraid for him. Mm-hmm. I was afraid for him. And, uh, you know, you, it makes you wonder, again, the impact that that ordeal had, not just on Mr. Aaron. I mean, you can imagine what it must be like on him because others around him felt that same angst yeah, for him. Yeah, feared for him, 100%. You feared for him. 100%. Yeah, he told me a couple of stories. Well, one, obviously, with his daughter, Gail, the fact that Gail had to have an FBI detail when she was at Fisk. So there was that. So there was obviously the threat against his family. So that was bad enough. But he'd also told me that at the end of the season, at the end of the 73 season, he had hit 713. And he didn't get it. Season was over. And he was telling me how he had spent the entire offseason thinking he was going to be murdered. Yes. You know, yes. spending the entire offseason thinking he was going to be assassinated. And he was also thinking just about fate getting in the way. On the one hand, one of the beauties of, of great records is all of the different things that have to work in your favor. You know, Willie Mays got all mad about the fact that he lost how many years to the war and then he played in a ballpark that was not home run friendly. You know, maybe Ted Williams breaks the record if he doesn't lose four and a half years, five years to the war as well. He breaks Ruth's record first. Henry goes from asymmetrical Milwaukee to a home run friendly park in Atlanta. All these things have to work in your favor for, every, for, for, for these hallowed records to fall. And here he is, one home run short. <laughs> and he's thinking, he, and he's thinking, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about Clemente. He's like, Clemente got his 3,000 from the last day of the season, and he didn't live to see the next season. Mm-hmm. And here I am, one short. What if I don't get there? And I'm just thinking, you know, like your heart is breaking while he's telling you this. And, you're, and, and it's one thing to to perish in an unfortunate and incredibly tragic uh, plane crash trying to do the right thing after the Nicaraguan earthquake. Quite another to have some white supremacy shoot you. Yes. Right? Quite another to, to be killed yes. for being a baseball player. Exactly. And so, exactly. He, yeah, so we're talking about this, and that was one of the very first things. The other story that I thought was crazy as well was Calvin Wardlaw, his, his, um, his bodyguard. So they've got Calvin and, you know, Calvin's traveling with them and they're making sure they're trying to protect Henry and the whole thing. So we all know the famous um, moment when Henry, you know, hits the home run and you've got the two kids, you know, Britt Gaston and Cliff Courtney running around the bases with him. And so, so you've got Calvin who's sitting on the third base side in his seats next to the family and so he's watching Henry round the bases. He sees these two figures coming out of the stands running toward Henry, right? I remember talking to uh, Ron Say about this, and Ron Say is standing at third base. And he's watching these two figures come toward Henry. And now Calvin 
used to keep his gun in his binoculars case. And so while these two college kids are running onto the field to congratulate Henry, Calvin goes in to the binoculars case to shoot them both. Mm -hmm. And there's this gallows humor in the Aaron family that they used that they used to laugh about for years saying, you know, Calvin had the best judgment of the night <laughs> because he didn't pull that didn't gun pull out the trigger. and he was didn't. very close to pulling that gun out yeah. to make sure they didn't yeah. get him. Yeah. And, and uh, we think about that from the standpoint of how tragic that could have turned out to be. One of the most celebrated accomplishments could have absolutely Been, ended. Exactly. Can you tragedy. imagine that? And yeah. I remember that the players, because one of the things that I wanted to do in that chapter was to just do a panorama, talk to everybody who was on the field that night and ask them what they remember, what their thoughts were. And it was real interesting talking to, you know, you had Ron Say and Bill Russell, the, you know, the shortstop and the third baseman. They're watching this come toward them. And they were like, well, we didn't really know what to do. If you watch the video, you've got, you know, Davey Lopes gives him a little, little pat on the butt when he goes by second base. And... I remember talking to another one we lost, Jimmy Wynn, out in center yes. field. Yes. And there's the cannon out there. He's watching this, and he's telling me what he felt. And he's talking about, he's like, I'm watching this man round the bases, and all I'm thinking about is when I was in the minor leagues and people were calling me alligator bait and all these other types of insults and how much someone like him paved the way for, for me. And I wouldn't be standing here if it weren't for him and he's on the other team, but it doesn't matter. I want to shake this man's hand right now, but I'm a, I'm 150 feet away. Um, it just gives you an idea of how much that meant to everybody. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it, it, it's almost surreal to think that 27 years after Jackie Robinson breaks baseball's color barrier, the vitriol that he was welcomed into mm -hmm. the Major League Baseball mm -hmm. win. 27 years later, Henry Aaron is enduring that same kind of hate and vitriol because he was making this ascent on this legendary figure record. Someone that, I think a record really, Howard, that no one thought would ever be broken and especially broken by a black man. Yeah, or at least broken first by. And I think you're right. And I think that this is... It's really interesting when we link, when we look at it from a historical standpoint, because to me, it's nowhere near as historical as it is emotional. This was a reminder of who this game belongs to, or who a lot of people think want this game to belong to, who they think this country belongs to, and that this is not yours. This is not your place to break the record. This is not your record to have. And all of those different things come together. And that's where a lot of the hate comes from. Who do you think you are taking this from us? We are allowing you to be here. And I think those are the things that really, really hurt Henry as well. And Joe Torre used to say it best. We ruined this man's life for doing his job. For doing his, his job. His job was to hit the ball over the fence. <laughs> he did what you asked him to do. He did yeah. everything. And that's the thing about Henry. And I you know, talked about this a lot when, when he passed. Here's a man who did everything you asked him to do. You asked him to pull himself up by his bootstraps, done. His father built that house by hand with, with, with nails and stuff that they salvaged from old, old scraps in the community, right? You asked this man to maximize his ability. He did it. You asked this man to play with dignity. He did it. You asked this man to be a team player. He did it. You asked this man to go out and give you everything he had every day. The man never went on the disabled list. Never went on a deal. You know, so he gave, he did everything you asked him to do. And this is how you congratulate him with him. The thing that he said, and, and the, one of the most true, the truest statement that you've probably ever heard, obviously, you know, Lou Gehrig saying he's the luckiest man on the face of the earth is really a wonderful thing to say. And I'm sure he believed that as well. Um, but when Henry said, I'm just glad it's over, he was, he was not being hyperbolic. Yeah, it really, yeah. you know, and it's that's yeah. what it takes, not just the yeah. exhaustion, but the mental exhaustion of what it meant as a as a person. And, and, and as I've said before, for Henry Aaron playing in the Deep South, there were no idle death threats. 
No, you that's take right. This, that's you take right. this for you take this that's serious. Right. Uh, he's just playing. No, they ain't yeah, playing no, no, down no. there. Exactly. So, can mm-hmm. you imagine what the summer, well, the, through the summer and fall and winter of '73? Yep. Knowing you one home run away from tying, two from mm-hmm. breaking it, and you don't know if you're gonna make it to that next season. That's right. You're looking 100%. over your shoulder everywhere you went. Mm-hmm. You know. And I, I, it's hard to even fathom what that must have been like. And so when I talked about him making his very first visit to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, 1999, 25 years later, after he had broken a record. And, yeah. and I honestly, Howard, believe that it took him that long before he was finally able to exhale and actually start to enjoy Again, what many believe to be the greatest sports accomplishment of all time. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that, um, and that's one of the areas, is no matter how many, how many different times and areas and subjects where we butt heads, you got to give Bud Selig all the credit in the world for this. Because let's not, we like, we like to think that history is clean and fun and, and that, oh my goodness, how could you possibly not respect Henry Aaron? Henry Aaron was not, was not really an overly, I'm not going to say not respected, everyone respected Henry in a way, but he was not considered um, a, an asset to the sport. The people in the game viewed him, oh, Henry's always just bitter. He's always bitter. He's talking about race and he's always bitter. That was the attitude toward him. That was the attitude toward him and by a lot of the public. And that was the attitude toward him from a lot of people inside of baseball, and where you had those older players, especially the older black players who were like, hey, don't forget about us. We built this thing too. And to the new generation of baseball employees and executives, they didn't really want to hear that grief. Now Bud comes in and Bud's like, it was like, it was like the mob. He's a made guy. You don't touch Henry. And now all of a sudden, now you've got the Hank Aaron award. And now you've got the connections with the chase and the dream foundation. Now you've got the boys and girls club connections and major league baseball contributing. And now you've got Henry. Henry is respected again. And Bud made that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that is no small thing because Without, without it, you may very well have had a generation of baseball people that didn't know how to respect this man. Just another, just another legend who, you know, wants to, t- you know, is, you know, isn't living in the now or whatever, because you know how we do that with ageism anyway. And now from those years, Henry went from mm, not quite sure to revered. Yes. Now he's revered and baseball. And that's the thing, like when we talk about institutions, the institution is not organic. You make things happen. You make things happen with your organization. You decide. The Negro League Museum is going to decide what it wants to be. It's not just going to be, oh, let's just go see what happens. You decide what organization you want to be. And Major League Baseball decided that Henry Aaron was going to be important. important. Yeah. He was going to be part of that future. And that is one of the reasons why Henry was able to relax. And I remember asking him, I said, is there ever a time where you just, when nobody's around and it's just you and you can figuratively put an umbrella in your drink and just say, I made it, that I did it. And he could finally say, yes, but you're right, Bob. It wasn't until the 2000s. Man was born in 1934. And so this is the real stuff. This is not, this is the stuff that fans don't always think about because they're thinking about what the athlete does for them they don't think about what the athlete is feeling and living. Yeah. Yes. And, and you know that that it's so atypical for those who played in the Negro League. So when we make comparisons between those who played in the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues, of course, now the Negro Leagues being recognized as the mm-hmm. Major Leagues, but we're not comparing apples to apples. That's right. No, no Major Leaguer ever had to worry about where they were going to get a decent night's sleep. That's right. Or and if no, they were going to have mm-hmm. a place to eat. That's right. And no and, Major League Baseball player ever had to worry about whether or not they would ever be recognized as a Major League player. That's the thing. And you know how I feel about that, right? <laughs> I'm like, the way I feel about that, I'm not going to get into that part, but what I'm going to say about that is, is that every dude who ever played in the big leagues can say, I played in the big leagues. And you could go to Baseball Reference, you could go to Old McMillan Baseball Encyclopedia, and your name is there. And no matter how you felt about how you played in the league, 
You can say, I made it. And that piece was deserved to those Negro League players. You know, they earned that. That wasn't given to them. They earned that, right? And so this is the type of stuff where we're not talking about balls and strikes and, and home runs anymore. We're talking about we're talking about your life. We're talking about what you produced and how you lived on this earth. And that is the real stuff. And that's what the museum is all about. That's why the museum is so important. It's like, you know, talk about never forget. We are never going to forget you. And that's real stuff. Yeah, no, because you've heard me talk about the photo and you've obviously seen the, the classic photograph of him standing at the train station. At the train station, in yeah. Mobile, about down, to in leave, Mobile. Uh-huh, to go join the Indianapolis Clowns. And, you know, again, what I sometimes try to bring out, if we had not witnessed what Henry Aaron did in the so-called major leagues, then no one would have ever believed the player of his magnitude would have existed. Yeah, and, and that exactly. was the plight. That was the plight that's, of all that's those players. Great, that's such a great point because, and all the words that you've said in all the years I've known you, I never heard you make this point before as well. But this is such a great point. Imagine reducing or thinking about Willie Mays, Henry Clemente, simply as legend with no numbers to put next to him. That we're all just guessing what kind of guy Henry Aaron was. We're all just kind of guessing what kind of player Willie Mays was. That that instead of the raw numbers, we just sort of, you know, put them into myth. I mean, one of the things that I love so much about that train station photo is the same thing we always love about youthful photos. When you go look back and somebody and you just see the possibilities. He had no idea what was in front of him. Yeah. Henry told me the first the first conversation he'd ever had with a white person was when he was 19. <laughs> 19 years old. Right? So when you look at that photo, you're looking at an America. You're looking at a man. You're looking at something that is almost incomprehensible. That he was on an airplane before he'd had a conversation with a white person. That wasn't, you know, like a, just a one-on-one person-to-person conversation. Everything else was was being condescending to yeah. or being oh, given yeah. orders, well, to, you know, from or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it's incredible. And, and then you start to think because I relate to this and I'm a, a baby of the early 1960s. Yep. You understood in the deep south what you could and what you couldn't do. And your parents pretty much said, okay, you can't go there. You don't do this. If this happens, this is what you do. Yep. And, and, and all of those kids of that era, they all got that. And they all knew it. They all knew it so that they yep. knew how to navigate so that you can make it back to where you needed to be. That's and so, right. yeah, it's not surprising that 19 years old before you ever talked to a white person. No, you were spoken and, to by them. You didn't talk to them. Exactly. And exactly. I, you know, it's fascinating because I, I sit there and, and the number of times when we've had these stories and you talk to the new generation and it goes back to what we were saying earlier. God, I never put up with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would have. Yeah, you would have. Yeah, you would have. Yeah. I talked to uh, Jim Gwynn. I don't know if you know Mr. Gwynn. Mr. Gwynn, Jim Gwynn was the uh, scout who signed Ricky Henderson. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Mr. Gwynn was from this little town, ooh, Jefferson, Texas, I think. I'll have to go look it up. I think he said he was from Jefferson, Texas. And he was walking down the street with his father. And he was telling, he told me the story about how when a white woman walked to him, they had to get off the sidewalk and turn away. They had to look away and get off the sidewalk. And he asked his daddy why. And he said, because they'll, at the very least, they'll throw you in jail for not doing that. At the least. At the least. And so here's Mr. Gwynn, and he's 10 years old, 11 years old. A couple days later, they're going into school to sing the Pledge of Allegiance and to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, and he refuses. Now they got to go get him. He's got to bring his father into school and the whole thing. And his father is forcing him to say the Pledge of Allegiance. 
And there's this little kid, this little 11-year-old looking at his father saying, yeah, but that liberty and justice for all ain't fair. It's not right. Forced him to say it anyway. And he said it. He did what his father told him to do. But he said it with such sarcasm that it offended the class even more. Mm -hmm. And so his father put him on a train and sent him to Oakland. Part of the migration. Because his attitude, he wasn't going to make it down there. No, he wasn't going to make it in the South. Exactly. So that was, and I was asking, how did you get to the, how did you get to Oakland? And he said, because my father told me, I owe you this. Mm-hmm. He told him, he said, if I don't take care, if I, what did he say? Because if I don't take care of you, the white man will. I owe you this. And send him to Oakland where he, I said, your father saved your life. He saved your life. He, he, he saved his life. And, and I mean, these stories are real. And like I said, I, growing up in a small Southern town, there were still these remnants of this as a kid. That's why I say when, for a black man in the deep South, there was no idle death threat. No, that's right. I remember hearing my own father say they could go into the store. And at that time, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a tobacco called Prince Albert. Oh, yeah. And, you and have Prince Albert in the can. Prince Albert in the can. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and Prince Albert had to pick up a white man on the can. Yep. And they had to or they had to buy that as Mr. Prince Albert. Wow. You couldn't go in the store and say, I want Prince Albert tobacco. No, no, no. That's Mr. Prince Albert. You know, and it was that kind of mindset. It reminds you now, your but place. Again, yeah, That's but right. again... As growing up in that environment, mm-hmm. you knew the to-dos and the, the, the don'ts, you know. You have order. to defer to no, a can of tobacco. Yeah, we call them survival skills. Is, that's that's, right. is, is what they are. 100%. You develop those. And, and I know that, that Henry and his mother and father provided those survival skills. And as to hearing him talk about his brief time in the Negro League, those older players from the Negro Leagues, tried to shelter those young players as much mm-hmm. as they could because they were living through them. Well, that's you know? right. That's right. One of the amazing things about Henry and the Negro Leagues, I know people really tie, because he was only there six weeks. Yeah, right? he was so there long. He was, he, he was just long enough. He was just there long enough to hit 411 or 412 or whatever he was hitting. <laughs> and, um, I rem- and I was researching that section of the book. I kept looking for stuff on, on Henry, on a young Hank Aaron, and um, you didn't find anything. There was only one thing that I really found, and it was a piece from the old Chicago Defender columnist, Doc Young. And um, he said, the Indianapolis Clowns are playing in whatever city they were playing. I know they played in Buffalo, but I don't know where this game was. It might have been a road game. And he, and he said in the column, you might want to go take a look because he won't be here long. <laughs> what is fascinating about that time period as well, to me at least, is, and you look at Henry's six weeks there, and he's only 18, right? I mean, he's an 18-year-old, and you, you can just see the talent. You think about, we like to refer to this as a color barrier, or when the color line was crossed or whatever, by the time Henry got called up, there's still only been like nine black players in the whole game since 47. Yeah. So you just think about the still, the level of reluctance. Willie Mays is in the league and they're still not quite sure they want black players on the team, right? They're not quite sure. And so it's such a fascinating, really underreported period because it's so narrow of we, when we talk about the color line, we make it sound like the minute they signed Jackie, everything was good. That's five years after Jackie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 12 years before every team had at least before, one yeah, black Before every team had one, exactly. And, so, and just one. Yeah, just one. And, and so you're right. It wasn't like the doors just opened and black folks ran on into the major Yeah, it was and what's that tell you about their experience process. when they walk into the door? Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you what, Howard, I mean, the book is absolutely amazing for those of you who have maybe not read this masterful work on Henry Aaron. The book is called The Last Hero, 
A Life of Henry Aaron. And now I can't think of a better time, if you haven't read this work, to go back and read about, I think, one of the most iconic figures, certainly in American sports history, but maybe in American history, and that's the late, great Henry Aaron. Mr. Howard Bryant, I want to thank you, man, for taking time out to join me on Black Diamonds and reflecting on someone who is near and dear to both of our hearts. I, like you, have a piece of my heart missing. Yeah, no as question. As a result of. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's no, no question about it. Well, but, you, you know our rules, Bob. When you call, I say yes. So we're good. <laughs> and um, to talk about Henry, like I said, it's just, there's a, life goes on, but things don't get replaced. They don't. And, and you cannot and replace a Henry Aaron. Henry just meant so much to, to all of us. And it all, I even hate talking about it sometimes because it all sounds, it's never enough, right? Whatever I say is not, never enough. It feels completely insufficient to how I feel. But I can say one thing. Um, you want to talk about being lucky? We got to be real lucky to be in this profession and to have the opportunities that we've gotten to be close to some of these people. It's really very much gratifying. Well, and, and you know what? And I don't take that for granted. I, I, I say this all the time. How blessed am I to have known Buck O'Neill, Monty Irvin, mm-hmm. Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, yep. Minnie Minoso. You know, you won't find any finer human beings that's that, right. co- that collection of, of people. That's and, right. And, and somehow or another, I am intertwined with that group. And, you know, it's something that is definitely not lost on me. And, of course, the affinity that I have for Mr. Aaron, as you say, the last hero, that was absolutely my hero. He was absolutely my hero. So, man, I can't thank you for the work that you've done. Not my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Don't miss part two of our celebration of the legacy of Henry Aaron, a conversation with the former teammate and friend of Henry Aaron and possibly the second greatest storyteller baseball has ever known, Houston Astros manager Dusty Baker. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnio Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. Special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.